All right, would you please take your copy of the Word of God, and would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. Today we're going to be talking about prayer because this is the passage where we have uh, what is called the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to try to rename that for you today because I think that's a, a wrong designation, or at least one that's not very helpful. Uh, so we'll get to that here in just a minute. This, this prayer that is before us, and basically I'm talking about in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through, and listen carefully, 9 through 13a. 9 through 13a. Um, that's because the last part of the Lord's Prayer there is, uh, that uh, is called a part of the text is really not a part of the text. And we'll talk about that when we get to it, all right? So the prayer before us, I think, would better be designated not the Lord's Prayer, but rather the disciples' prayer. Uh, this is because uh, Jesus was teaching them how to pray. We'll see this in just a minute. One of the disciples, after Jesus was done praying, said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Now, imagine that. You're sitting with the Lord. This, this uh, Lord of ours knows how to pray. He knows exactly what he should say to the Father. And if we had the opportunity to hear what Jesus would say about how do I pray, we would, we would really be paying attention. What we have here for us uh, in black and white today. Jesus then is teaching them how they should pray. For a prayer that we can truly say would be the Lord's Prayer, then we would go to what theologians call the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ in John chapter 17. Now that takes the whole prayer. Now I've been to a lot of church services, I've been to a lot of funerals, I've been to some weddings where they want us to stop and recite the Lord's Prayer. And it's always kind of comical to me because people grew up in different traditions and we stumble through some of the things. So sometimes people say, well, let's say uh, our trespasses instead of our sins this time so we can all be together. But it ends up being kind of jumbled all up and it's kind of hilarious that we don't even have the same words to say for the prayer. But there's a reason for that. But I have never in my life heard anybody pray the high priestly prayer in John 17. Number one, it takes up the whole passage, the whole chapter is about the prayer, and it's Jesus praying for us, and so we just don't repeat that. But if there's a prayer of Jesus Christ, the Lord's Prayer, it's John 17. It's really not this one. This is for a different purpose. And we want to take note that the disciples were learning how to pray. Lord, how do we pray? Now, usually when you learn something, they tell you here's point A, B, C, and D, and this is what you do, but you don't, you don't necessarily have to do that in every situation that way exactly. It's, it might be A plus subpoint one and two, B subpoint one, and stuff like that. Uh, we may add some stuff to it, but God is saying this is the pattern of prayer that you should use, not that this is the prayer that I want you to pray over and over and over again. Uh, that's uh, something that I want to go to Luke chapter 11 for, and I want you to see some things here. Uh, that also is where Luke recorded the Lord's Prayer, and that's going to be in chapter 11, verse 2. And so it's also in verse 1 where we learned that it was a disciple who said, Lord, teach us to pray, because John taught his disciples to pray. Now, we don't have that. We don't know what John taught his disciples to pray. We do have what the Lord had, had for us, and he says this, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. 
Now, if you pray the Lord's Prayer, normally you're going to pray the Matthew one. Normally people don't pray this one. This one doesn't have all the, of the Matthew prayer. It's a little bit different, and it doesn't end the same way. It ends differently. I've never been anywhere where they say, let's pray the Lord's Prayer, and let's use the model in Luke chapter 11. Uh, it's usually the other one. But do you see that they're different? Do you see they don't have the same words? Do you see that there's something going on there where uh, one says some things that the other one doesn't? And if the Lord was saying, this is the way I want you to pray, only pray this way, pray this way in spiritual issues and spiritual times, you would think they'd be the same, but they're not. So I'm trying to lay some groundwork uh, here for that. I don't think uh, the church is less spiritual if we don't say regularly uh, the disciples' prayer, and that's what I'm calling it, in, in our church services. Sometimes we have people that come and visit us or they come and actually want to come to church here and they came out of uh, different traditions, whether they be Catholic or Lutheran or, or Orthodox or something like that. And uh, I've had people say to me after church service, don't you people ever say the Lord's Prayer? Uh, don't you people ever read the Nicene Creed or don't you ever use uh, uh, the Apostles' Creed and recite that? And I say, no, we don't. Uh, we don't do that and there's reasons why we don't do that. And one of the reasons we don't do that is because just by reciting what the Lord gave us as a blueprint for prayer doesn't mean we did something holy or good. I've seen this happen at funerals of people that aren't saved, and there's all kinds of unsaved people there. Somehow they even know the Lord's Prayer. I want, are you thinking about what you're saying? When an unsaved person says, Lord, may your kingdom come, do you really know what you're asking for? Do you know what the kingdom is? Do you know what God is talking about there? The answer is no, you don't. So I don't, why do we do that? I don't know. Uh, some people come to church and they say, well, it hasn't been church if we don't say those things. Another thing that I've been asked is, well, why don't we ever say the Nicene Creed? Why don't we ever recite that together? And, you know, we could. In fact, I looked it up here for you just a minute ago. Um, it, it's on page. It's really not a page number, but they start numbering these things in order. It's number 717. We have the Nicene Creed in our hymnal. Why is that? Well, because a lot of churches use that as part of their liturgy and what they do on Sunday. Let's do the Nicene Creed. Why don't we do the Nicene Creed? Well, we don't do the Nicene Creed. The same reason we don't do uh, what, what is called, and that's on 716, the Apostles' Creed. Because uh, there are some of those, and ours doesn't in this particular text, except it does here, uh, well, it does in, this, in our hymnal. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, when people recite that, it says, uh, he descended into hell and rose on the third day. There is no evidence in the Bible, none whatsoever. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross and go to hell for three days. That is not what that means. That is not what happened. That is not biblical. Why would I ask my church to stand and open to that 716 and recite the Apostles' Creed when it has theology in it that is absolutely unbiblical? By the way, there's two Apostles' Creeds. One's the old Roman Creed and the Gallic Creed. This is the Gallic Creed. The old Roman one says nothing about descending into hell. Why, why don't I want to do the Nicene Creed? Because it's making God's people say something that isn't true. Because you get to the end of the Nicene Creed, and it says, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. That isn't biblical. Sins are not remitted because of baptism. They're remitted by the blood of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and us putting faith in him. That's how we get rid of sins. Baptism doesn't do that. Why would I have God's people stand up and recite together that which isn't true? Now, everything in the Lord's Prayer is true, and everything that he says is true, but did he mean for us to just go over that and over that? Now, I, I, I purposely did not get the name of the Star Wars movie. Uh, it's, it's one of the later ones. 
and it's one, if you've watched it, where this guy, and you know the, the religion there is Hinduism, and it's all about uh, the, the powers and the forces in the world, the force of evil and the force of good. Now, we believe in a force of evil and good, but not in a Hindu way, and the Star Wars, uh, they're all built on Hinduism and those powers, and there's a guy in there, and he's blind, and he's got, you know, I don't know if he's got a bald head or he's shaved or not, and he carries this stick, and he can beat up, you know, just you know, legions of uh, stormtroopers, and he's completely blind. But when he's walking out to fight these people, what he does is he says, I am with the force and the force is with me. I am with the force and the force is with me. I am with the force and the force is with me. And he just does that every time he goes into something. It gets obnoxious. It, it get, you say, well, okay, wait a minute. A step ago you said you were with the force and the force is with you. How can we have to hear it every step you take? You know what we call that? Vain repetition to a pagan god when we think that the more I say it, the more I have the possibility of getting it to be true in my life. And so I'm not promoting that, uh, obviously. I'm actually saying I'm against that. Very seldom ever at a gravesite have I ever said, well, let's recite the Lord's Prayer. But I always pray. Uh, I don't think it's less holy or more holy if you do that. And I'm going to try to explain that as we go through here. It demonstrates uh, the greatness of God in this prayer and admits that we are completely dependent on him. So in my prayer, I want to say something about the greatness of God, that I recognize that, and God, I'm dependent on you. Everything that I do, I'm dependent upon you. Uh, God, uh, that would, then we admit that we are completely dependent on him, and that's the position of a servant. The truth is that we don't even say it right, uh, nor do we really understand it most of the time when, when we're in crowds. And the crescendo at the end of the song uh, or the prayer uh, with these words in 13b are not even a part of the original Greek text. Do you see that if you have a good Bible? As a matter of fact, uh, my Bible has parentheses around that in a note. It says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, that's how we say it. And we find out that in the, in the early manuscripts, possibly, more than likely, uh, you can count on the fact that Matthew didn't write those words. Somebody added them. It's not even a part of the prayer. And uh, sometimes we're at odds with how we ought to say that when we're reciting it together. And, and it's not even in the text. If you have a new, uh, a new 2020 New American Standard Bible, uh, they don't even print it in there because it's not a part of the text. And yet it's, it's somebody wrote it in the side of the margin sometimes, some scribe, it gets into the text, and now we think it's a part of the Lord's Prayer and you've got to say it that way, you're not doing what the Lord said. It's not even there. And so uh, if you have a newer Bible, new study Bible, they've, they've more than likely taken it out. So it's not a part of the original text. And we're after the original text. We want the things that Matthew wrote. And that's what we're going to stake our life on because that's what God inspired and gave us as truth. So um, these things like reciting the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, it's not so much an act of worship as it is an issue of teaching and learning. Uh, some of these creeds were given so that people would learn good theology. Okay, the Nicene Creed is good until we get to the part where it says that baptism brings the remission of sins. No, it doesn't. The Bible doesn't say that. Why would I want my people to learn that? Why would I want my kids growing up in our church to get out of there and somebody asks them a question, well, what saves you? And they say, well, uh, the remission of sins is through baptism. We should say that every week in a creed. And no, it's not. It's falsehood. So we don't learn that. Today we're going to learn what God does and does not like in prayer, what he approves of and what he does not approve of in prayer. This is introduced in our text in Matthew 6 and verses 7 and 8. 
And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. I just gave you an example of that. I am with the force and the force is with me. I am with the force and the force is with me. That's meaningless repetition to a pagan demonic god. Don't do what the Gentiles do. Don't do repetition. Uh, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Repetition can be every time we sit down at the table, somebody says, well, let's pray. Who wants to lead us? And it's come, Lord Jesus, be thou our guest, and let these gifts to us be blessed. Amen. Let's eat. I added the let's eat part. Um, I've been in families. That's all they do. They never pray anything different. That's all the kids know. Uh, are we really thankful for the food? I've had kids that pray some of the most beautiful prayers I've ever heard. Uh, one of them, uh, as they were going through their prayer, I looked up and found out, how do they know all this? Because they said, Lord, thank you for this, this delicious corn that we have here today. And I'm so thankful for these mashed potatoes and gravy, brown gravy. And they have one eye open, they're going over the table, and they're thanking God for everything on the table. Now that's Thanksgiving, all right? I like that. Uh, I like to hear kids pray because they're so sincere. They're not trying to impress anybody. They just, what's on my heart? And Jesus, thank you for that. Well, he goes on to say, so do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So we learn in 7 and 8 that we cannot manipulate God with our prayers, and there is no need to try. We're going to talk about what it, what it looks like to beg God for something, and what it's like to do vain repetition. Listen, God says at the beginning, before he teaches us to pray, God is not, cons not interested in Vain repetition. Vain repetition means I know it, I just say it by rote. It doesn't mean anything to me. I don't look for I don't look for the meaning in it. I just say it. So what he just said was, I'm going to teach you how to pray. Don't turn this into vain repetition. And that's exactly what we have done with other things too. In verse 7, Jesus is interested in how we talk to the Father. Prayer is addressed to the Father in Jesus' name. Number one, he does not appreciate it when people use meaningless repetition in prayer. So if all I ever say is, come Lord Jesus, be thou our guest, and let these gifts to us be blessed, amen, and I never say anything else, I never let a child pray to figure out what prayer is supposed to be like, then I'm doing vain repetition. And the Lord is not interested in vain repetition. We don't get closer to God by saying spiritual things. Don't do this then, or you're praying like some of the unbelievers, the pagans praying to some demonically inspired false god. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that vain repetitions are what the pagans use in prayer. They think the more they talk, the more they're going to be heard. If they, or if the guy says about the force, the, so this Hindu force, the, I am with the force, the force is with me, and he says it more and more and more, that it'll actually be true. It'll actually come to him. And God is saying, we don't pray like that because we don't pray to those gods. And by the way, uh, demons allow people to manipulate them through their prayers to demons uh, for what they want. And then they use those things against those people because they give it to them to destroy them because we ask for things from demons that are not good. The Bible is teaching us we're not pagans. We don't serve false gods. We don't pray to our God the way they pray to their gods. I think that this includes begging God sometimes when we really want something. Oftentimes people beg God, listen, this is, this is important, we beg God for what we are responsible for doing. Get that? I have heard people plead with God, please God, take away my pride. They might say that, or they might say something like, Lord, make me desire your commandments to do them. Lord, make me be obedient to your word. Or Jesus, take away my hypocrisy. Jesus, take away my pride. Jesus, make me into a holy person. 
Jesus will never answer one of those questions. Because Jesus is waiting for you to make a decision. Jesus is more than happy to help us stop being hypocrites. He wants us to stop being prideful. Jesus is more than interested that we obey the commandments of God. But listen, Jesus will never force you to do anything. He wants you to make a decision. He wants you to say, your word is important to me. And you don't have to instill in me uh, this, this magical thing of making your commandments clear to me so I can do them. They're already clear. Jesus says, they're already there. All you have to do is decide, I'm going to follow the commandments of God. I'm going to be obedient to God. You can also say, Lord, I'm done being a hypocrite. I'm, I'm done being a pretender. Would you forgive me for my hypocrisy? And maybe list some of the things that you've been a hypocrite in. And then the Lord will take a step in your direction and help you to continue to stop being a hypocrite. But why beg him for something that he already wants? I have actually stopped people and said, excuse me, would you please stop that? You don't have to beg God to make you not be prideful. You just have to ask God to help you because you're deciding to repent of the, of the issue of pride in every form of it and just say, I'm not going to be pride, prideful anymore. And if I do, I'm going to ask forgiveness right away. And then God will help you. So we don't need to beg him for anything. You know that he knew what you were going to say before he even said it, right? In verse 8, we're not to pray like the godless pray. The main reason is that God already knows what you have on your heart before you ask him. So I'm going to go back to Psalm 139 and uh, read that in verse 4. The Bible teaches us that even before there is a word on my tongue. So I, I go somewhere to pray. I like to pray in here. Sometimes some of you come and pray in here. I love that. But I like to pray in here. But God knows that before I get from my office to here, everything I'm going to say. Even before there is a word on my tongue, even before I might say my father or something like that, God already knows the words. Behold, he says, Yahweh, you know it all. You know it all. He's not going to learn something new in my prayer. He's not going to learn uh, what I was going to say. He's not been waiting. Oh, boy, I wonder what Greg's going to say today. Let's see what he's going to say. He already knows it. And that should do something to change the way we approach God. Uh, Dr. Uh, Craig Blomberg shares two insights with us about this. I want to share those with you. He says, Verse 8 does not forbid prayer, as verses 9 through 11 make clear, but calls for simplicity, directness, and sincerity in talking to God. You don't have to remind him of what the Lord's Prayer says. He already knows it. He wrote it. He goes on to say, in light of verses 7 through 8, it is highly ironic that this prayer, he's talking about the Lord's Prayer, has come to be repeated mechanically, and that's the problem, in many Christian traditions. He says, already in the Didache, which is supposedly a book that was written by the 12, Didache means to teach, by the 12 apostles, they supposedly got together and wrote this uh, theological treatise, which I'm, there's no real proof they ever did that, but in the Didache, it was already commanding Christians to recite this prayer of the Lord three times a day. That's why I have problems thinking the apostles wrote that. They know better. You're not going to get closer to God than if we get on your, your knees uh, three times a day and, and start with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
all right? And uh, <laughs> I get a kick out of that too because uh, even though this is in modern English, I grew up reciting this with the King James English and I can't stop. All right, there's no these and thous in my text here, but that's the way my dad talks when he prays, and that's why I did it. And, and by reciting it three times a day, I am not going to get closer to God. So back to uh, Dr. Blomberg, he says, accompanied by the notion that frequent repetition develops spirituality. No, it doesn't. A heart open to God, that develops spirituality. An obedient heart to God, that develops spirituality. We don't pray to a dead idol or to some impotent demonic angel. We pray to the living, all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present at once creator, God of the universe. And by the way, the best part about this in prayer, he loves you. He loves you. There's no other God like that. And he doesn't love you for what you do for him. He loves you because he chose to love you. And if you mess up and you came to pray and ask forgiveness, he still loves you as much as he did before you asked. And he'll never love you differently. I like to say that God loves you as much as he can possibly love you. As God, that's a whole bunch. And when you go to prayer, you don't get turned away. He doesn't say, you know what, you've been such a wretched sinner this week, I'm not listening to you. <laughs> that would never happen, not with our God, no way. And it says here uh, in verse 8, uh, the word need there, it means that which should happen or be supplied because it is needed. That's good stuff. All right, your father knows what you need before you ask him. I think what that means is it's already taken care of, it's already planned on. But I think God wants us to ask. You know why I think that? Because he, he commands us to pray. It's not an option. Jesus is interested in how we pray. Now verses 9 and 10, getting into the actual prayer. Pray then this way. He didn't say pray this three times every day. He didn't say make sure when, when the church shows up after I'm gone, I need you to pray that at every church service, pray it at every funeral, pray it at every wedding. It just says pray this way. This is how you pray. Not this is what you pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Now that's a believer saying, God, we'd like your kingdom to, to come. Your will be done. God, I submit myself to you. It's your will I want done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, the pagans that are at these funerals and reciting this prayer with us, they don't mean that. It doesn't do them any good. Uh, on my way to, to the farm in McDonald, I passed lots of signs somebody put up, and they're very well done, and they almost look hand-painted, and it just says, you look up, here's a picture of a long-haired Jesus in a robe, and it says, Jesus, I trust you. Do you think that people driving by there are going to read, Jesus, I trust you, and somehow magically, even though they don't know Jesus, they don't know who he is or what he stands for, they don't know what he did on the cross, just if they say, Jesus, I trust you, that they don't know it, but they get to go to heaven when they die? I don't think so. I'm not against people being reminded they need to trust Jesus, but I'd rather have a sign that says, you need to trust this guy. <laughs> you need to find out who he is, and you need, to, you need to believe in him. But that's what it says. We begin our prayer by focusing on who our great God is. Who do you think you're talking to? Who do you think that you are approaching? He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he loves you. He wants you there, but he's not 
he's not to be treated like my best buddy or my best friend. I don't, I don't talk to God the same way I talk to my best buddy. I have much more respect for him. And I think that as we begin into prayer, we need to remember who we're praying to and that we need great respect for him. So this is how to pray, not what to pray over and over. He didn't add, make sure you uh, pray this exact prayer. Well, wait a minute, Lord, this one or the one in Luke? This exact prayer every Sunday in church. There is no other reference to this being prayed by rote in the early church, except the one in the Didache, and that was a command to do it. Don't know if they did it. In verse 9b, we, we address our Father, but we do it with a desire to respect his name. Lord, holy be your name. And I'm telling you, we live in a world that God's name is absolutely not more than a cuss word or a cuss phrase. And you've all heard people use uh, that, that word God uh, to cuss or some other, other way. And that's absolutely not what he wants us to do. It, I just cringe when I hear people use God's name that way. Sometimes I wonder why he doesn't strike them dead right, right on the spot. We get to pray to our Father who loves his children. Romans 8.15 uh, had something to say about that relationship. So I want to read that. Not that you don't know it, I, I know you do. Romans 8.15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery. He's talking about when you trusted Christ, leading to fear again. No. But you received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, and, and the, the Hebrew of this is Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. It's a term of love. I didn't have my kids growing up calling me Pastor Hubbard or, or the right Reverend Greg or, uh, you know, just Mr. Hubbard. They got to call me Greg, and uh, that's, that's fine. I want a term of endearment. They got to call me Daddy, and that, that says there's something special going on here. Uh, with this relationship. And friends, that's what Jesus said we have with the Father. We recognize with reverence, that is respect, devotion, or admiration, that he is holy and pure and completely clean. And you know what? If it wasn't for him, we'd have none of that. We remember who we are. And we live in a world where the name of God is not often respected or revered for his holiness. It's used flippantly, uh, without thought of respect, and, and as I said, it's used even in phrases for cussing. Certainly, that kind of blasphemy and irreverence should never leave our mouths. I, like you, uh, I hope, take personal offense when I hear people say, oh my God, and they say it about everything, and they don't mean any of it. And so we've made a rule in youth group, you can't say that, and you can't use the slang like, oh my gosh, because it means the same thing. We don't talk to God that way. We don't say those things. I don't mind if people say, oh, my heavens, or oh, my word, that's okay, but I don't like that. I don't know what you like. When we come to God, we come with respect for who he is, and that's why there are four angels, and uh, nobody I know of uh, had any of these appear to them uh, here on earth, and they're called seraphs, or seraphim, and their job is to constantly cry out in the throne room of God, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And it talks about that, and I'm going to read that. In Isaiah 6.3, you have those references in your bulletin. Isaiah 6.3. I'm going to actually start in verse 2. Seraphim, which is just the plural for seraph. Seraphim stood above him, meaning God, the Father, on his throne, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, 
and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So this is an angel with uh, six wings. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold, and he's talking about of the throne room of God, trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And I think uh, our, our um, Bible, our study Bibles and, and our commentaries are correct in saying that these are the same four creatures that appear in Revelation uh, chapter 4, verse 8, without being named. Revelation 4, 8. Get there in just a second. And the four living creatures, and, and I'm sorry, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they do not cease, saying, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then the living creatures gave glory, and the elders cast their crowns to the feet of Jesus. When the seraph spoke, these words shook the temple in heaven. And I think that's because the holiness of God should be earth-shaking because we are certainly nothing like him. We are unholy. He is holy. He's okay. We're not okay. We need him before we can be okay. So we treat it with great respect. In verse 10, we desire the kingdom of Christ to come. Here, Dr. Keener says, you know what, I missed something here, didn't I? I don't know where it was. But I want to read this because uh, it'll, it'll explain what I'm going to read here in a minute. Um, Dr. Keener said, first of all, Jesus here probably accepts an early form of what became a basic synagogue prayer. So not the church, but the synagogue. And it was called the Kaddish. And it became something like this. Exalted and hallowed be this great name in the world which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule. Now that's before Jesus gave his, his prayer. And so you can see there's some similarities with that. Uh, Dr. Keener goes on to say, neither the Kaddish nor Jesus' sample prayer is a prayer for the complacent person satisfied with the treasures of this age. And what he's saying is this. People pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. What you're really saying if you want his kingdom to come is, I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. I want to go where Jesus has this world headed. I'd like it to come now. And the problem is uh, there's people that really don't want to go. Uh, they would be upset if Jesus came this afternoon. They have plans. They have things to do. They have some fun things they want to go see. They have family. And, uh, you know, no, Lord, don't come today. You know, I maybe just said that in some church. Your kingdom come, your will be done. First John 2.15 uh, somewhat chastises us when he says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if you pray, Lord, your kingdom come, you really need to mean it. And sometimes at a funeral, I don't think people really mean that. I'm not to judge their heart, but I just know some of them that are there don't even know Jesus. Do you really want his kingdom to come? God is prom a promise-keeping God. He will bring his kingdom to earth fully one day. I think those days are upon us when things are going to start. 
We long for this because it means he will be fully in charge of all the earth. And by the way, on Sunday nights in the book of Psalms, we are learning how to handle tribulation and trial. There's, a, there's a God's secret in that. And we're, he's revealing it in Psalm 119. We long for his coming because he's fully in charge of everything that happens and everything on this earth. And he's in control. We desire that his will would be accomplished in our individual lives as well as in the world. As God's will is done in heaven, we desire that it's done on earth as well. All right? And, and the question we need to ask is, do I really? Could I really pray your kingdom come and mean it? Or do I have other th stuff going on? Do we really desire his will to be done in my own life? Do we ever say, your will be done, Jesus? However... Father, please note uh, this little list I have here of things that uh, I don't choose to follow you in. Yeah, I've been through the Bible, and there's some things I don't really like, so I want your will to be done, but in my life, here's a list of things that I'm not going to do. Or, Lord, here are some areas where I want my will to be done, not yours. In other words, I'm not going to let you make a choice on this for me. I'm going to make my own choice in these areas. God, here's that list. Or... Lord, here are some areas where my will be done, not yours, Lord. Lord, here are a few areas where I disagree with you and I will not be obeying you. And I got another list of those here. Here's my three lists. Uh, I don't really agree with these things, so you just don't count on me to do them. Well, how about coming when he wants to come? <laughs> I really want that. In verses 11 through 13a, so I'm not including 13b because it was not a part of the original text. Snuck in somehow. We trust God to meet our needs and to preserve us through Satan's temptations. I'm so happy he added the conflict with the evil one because there is a raging conflict in our world is being given over to the deception of the evil one. And that's a designation for Satan and his, uh, his minions. Our world is being given over. Uh, there is a, a lady who's been a, a, a staunch liberal and feminist. And her name is Naomi Wolf. And on the radio the other day, she started saying, I'm, gonna have to, I'm just going to have to swallow my words. I think there may be a God. And if there is a God, there has to be an evil influencer in the world. She said, I, I can't believe that people in the world, anybody, is so smart that they could put together the demise of society around the world on their own. They're getting help from some spiritual being. Now, she doesn't know if she's talking about the devil. I don't know that she became a Christian. I don't think she has. But coming from the mouth of a person that's an avowed atheist and pagan and, and realize that she's starting to think, maybe I shouldn't be an atheist. Maybe there's something to this. And uh, she's right. There is something to that. There is a force moving in our world because God's allowing it to bring about his plan. Well, we find here in the prayer the issue of our sustenance, forgiveness, and avoidance of sin. In verse 11, it's a request for God to sustain us in this life by giving us food to eat. That's why we pray at every meal. Every meal he gave us more food to eat. And so we pray and thank him. We recognize where it came from. Now, there is a difficult word here in the Greek text that we uh, don't have agreement on among commentators. And so, uh, as we read that, give us this day our daily bread. That's one people have trouble with. Um, it either means, uh, it can mean, give me what is necessary for existence, or it can mean for our current need that I have, or for our bread for tomorrow. 
And the, the point of that is it really doesn't matter. God's the one that gives us our sustenance every single time we get it. So whatever way you go, it all boils down to us acknowledging our dependence on God for life-sustaining food that we need to eat. If God knows what you're going to say in your prayer before you ever pray, then why bother to pray? Well, number one, because he told you to. And number two, it's in prayer, mostly, that we should come face to face with the fact that I'm not God. There's only one God. I'm not in control of my life. He's in control of my life. I may have a job and think I'm providing food, but it's not true. He's providing the food. And prayer is all about submission to the one who loves us. All of it comes from God. And that's what we need to thank him for every time we get something from his hand. Dr. Turner says the point seems to be that the disciple prays for immediate day-to-day necessities rather than for long-term luxuries. And I thought that would be a good thing to add into our uh, understanding. In verse 12, we ask God, though we are forgiven forever, to forgive us our sins. We keep short accounts with God. We may be forgiven, and we are forgiven for all of our past sins, any current sins today, and sins of the future. We are, but he still said, ask God to forgive us. Why? Because that keeps our relationship close and fresh with him. We don't let a lot of sin build up because that will affect us negatively. We take care of it. We recognize our sin, we confess it to him, and we seek God's forgiveness, which keeps us in fellowship with him. Please note that debt here refers to sin. Also note that the person asking God for forgiveness has already in the past forgiven those who have sinned against him. I have the right to ask God to forgive me if I have forgiven those who've sinned against me. We can't get that backwards. Good thing to be reminded of. Uh, as we go before the Lord. In verse 13, we ask God not to lead us into temptation, but rather that he would deliver us from the evil one. Now, my uh, New American that I'm using this morning, the 1995 version, it says, but deliver us from evil. If you have a good study Bible, uh, it says literally in the Greek text, it says deliver us from the evil one. Who is that? That's Satan. And they're praying. Jesus said, I taught you to pray that you ask God to deliver you from the evil one. So many Christians today think that they're godly and spiritual and they have to worry about the evil one in their life. And then they go out and sin and things really get bad and they don't realize the evil one has taken a place, taken ground in their life and is causing problems. We need to deal with that. And that's why the Lord told us to pray that. Jesus warned his disciples to watch and pray so that they would not come into temptation on the night in which our Lord was betrayed He's trying to get a prayer time in with the disciples. He actually goes a little bit further from them on the Mount of Olives. And in Matthew 26 and verse 41, uh, the Lord says to them, keep watching and praying, all right? Uh, And he had come to the disciples, and what he found was they were asleep. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, they're on the verge of a very difficult next day. The next day, the the Savior will be taken from them, and by the next morning, he's going to be on a cross. Jesus knows this. He's sweating blood while he prays. They're sleeping. (laughs) And Jesus says, what you need in this hour is what? Prayer. Don't fall into temptation. If Satan has been loosed on this world, and if Naomi Wolf is right about what's happening, and she is, 
that he's gathering the nations for a war against the Savior, then I need to be in prayer that I don't fall into temptation or get lured away from God. And this is the hour I need to be fervently in prayer. You know what happened? Jesus went away and came back there sleeping again. He went away again, came back there still sleeping, but he wakes him up and he says, the one who betrays me is here. This is the time. And I think that urgency should be a part of our prayers. Um, he also said in, in Matthew 4, 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, to be tempted by the devil. Uh, the Lord was led up to be tempted, and though he proved uh, absolutely pure and proved that he was the Son of God by, uh, by going through those temptations successfully, God also allows temptations in our lives in order that we may prove our faithfulness to him. So we want to look at the prayer and ask what's in it. We want to see that we're talking to our Father who loves us, who is over all. That's why he's in heaven. I want to make sure I say something about the fact that I will, will make his name holy and I'll use it in a holy way. And then I want to make sure he knows I'm all about his will and his kingdom and I want his will to be done, not my own. So sometimes when I'm just praying for something, that's something I need to visit. Am I just praying for this because it's my will or is God in this? So we can take those lessons out of that prayer and apply it to our prayers that we use with God. I'm not saying that it's wrong to recite the Lord's Prayer. I am saying it's wrong to use it as a rabbit's foot. It's wrong to use it with unbelievers who don't know what they're praying and they don't mean it. And it was meant to be instructional and God gave it to us to learn how to pray. Well, um, let me uh, leave these il uh, illustrations, applications, and they're at the bottom of your bulletin there. Dr. Blomberg said, number one, prayer calls for simplicity, directness, and sincerity in talking to God. I mentioned that last week a little bit. Number two, prayer should not invite human attention, but rather it should invite divine attention. Who are you praying to? Not the group of people that you're among, but you're praying to God. So make sure it gets his divine attention. Thirdly, prayer is about our needs, not our greed. Prayer seeks the will of the Lord and that his will would be done in me first and then in others, which means I need to make a choice. And then finally, uh, we learn from Matthew 7, 7 to 8, that we should ask and it will be given. In James 4, 2, we learn we, we need to ask. God wants to hear us to ask. He wants us to pray. And we learn in Luke 18, 1 through 8, that prayer is something we do and we don't give up. We don't lose heart. And that's that uh, illustration of the unrighteous judge and the lady that was bothering him until she got an answer. And the Lord said, you don't have to bother God that way. Go ahead and be persistent in your prayer, but know that he listens and he hears you and he will answer because he loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our goal for, for us, because we think it's your goal for us, to learn how to pray. And we come before you in these days knowing that the days are evil. And we just want you to know you are our God and no other. You are the one we trust in. You're the one that we are going to obey no matter what comes. I pray that you would protect us 
from Satan and his forces. And we know that we have a job to do in that, and that is to keep our accounts short with you, to choose not to sin and give the enemy a base of operation in our lives. And I ask that you would help us to use what you have given us in prayer to remember that we are submissive to you, that you're in charge, and most of all, that you care about us. In your name we pray and thank you. Amen.